on True Crime Fans. I'm your host, Teeth. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well today. Big thanks to Julia for recommending today's case. This is a really interesting one that had a ton of recent developments, and it has some type of connection to the Boston Strangler, which we are going to talk about. So I know a lot of you guys know about that case, so that's kind of an interesting angle of this story. Um, But yeah, I don't think we got anything else for you today. Appreciate you guys being here. Make sure you go and check out our socials if you want to see photos from this case and every other case that we've ever covered on this show. We're on Instagram at Going West Podcast, Twitter at Going West Pod, and we're also on Facebook. All right, guys, this is episode 376 of Going West, so let's get into it. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In January of 1969, a 23-year-old Harvard graduate student headed out for dinner and ice skating with her boyfriend. After returning home to her Cambridge apartment that night, she was found bludgeoned to death. For nearly 50 years, her murder would go unsolved. But then, with the help of Ancestry DNA, police uncovered a serial killer. This is the story of Jane Britton. Sanders Britton was born on May 17, 1945, in Boston, Massachusetts, to parents Ruth and Joseph. She grew up alongside a brother named Boyd and two half-siblings, Charles and Susan, from Joseph's previous marriage, in the southwest Boston suburb of Needham. Growing up, Jane was a stellar student and came by it honestly, as her mother Ruth was a medieval history scholar, which is so cool. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that either. It's badass. And her father, Joseph, was the administrative vice president of Radcliffe College, which was the sister college of Harvard that was later absorbed by the university. Jane attended the prestigious Dana Hall Private Girls School in Wellesley, Massachusetts, where she busied herself honing a variety of hobbies and skills. 
A lover of classical music, Jane mastered both the piano and the organ and also nurtured her creative spirit through painting. She was passionate about animals and loved riding horses, so animals were her favorite subject to paint. She was fluent in French and spoke some German, Spanish, and Farsi as well. After graduating from the Dana Hall School, she went on to attend Radcliffe College, which is where her father worked, pursuing a degree in anthropology. And to no surprise, Jane excelled in her studies and had a fascination with archaeology, especially in the Middle East. In 1967, she graduated from Radcliffe College magna cum laude and immediately continued her anthropological studies in Harvard University's graduate program. During the summer of 1968, Jane traveled to southeastern Iran with a group of fellow graduate students for an archaeological dig and actually helped uncover ruins that dated back to Alexander the Great. So it's pretty safe to say that she was an incredibly intelligent person. Oh, absolutely. A spokesman for the anthropology department described her as, quote, very talented, a bright student, and a great artist. One professor remembered, quote, everybody liked her. In the classroom and among her peers, she was known for her work ethic and painstakingly meticulous attention to detail. Those accompanying her on her dig in Iran credited her with one of the trip's most important discoveries and praised her for her quick wit. And it was in her graduate program that she met fellow anthropology student James Humphreys, a 27-year-old from Toronto, Canada, and the two began dating. Jane settled into a three-bedroom apartment on the fourth floor of Six University Road, which is near the Harvard Yard campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the complex, which was this large brick building offering spacious apartments to students, was owned and operated by Harvard. Jane was absolutely thrilled to live next door to two of her closest friends there, which were Jill and Donald Mitchell, a young couple who were also Harvard University students. And Jane had even played the organ at their wedding. Jane's parents, however, were pretty hesitant to let her put roots down in this area. I mean, not only did they describe it as a dingy old brick building, but it had been the scene of a heinous crime just a few years prior. On May 6, 1963, 23-year-old Beverly Sammons was raped, strangled, and stabbed inside her apartment in the very same complex that Jane later moved into which will prove to be an even eerier detail as Jane's story unfolds. Like Jane, Beverly was a promising young student and was a music teacher who was preparing to begin her master's degree studies at Boston University. Beverly's death was the ninth strangling to take place in the city of Boston that very year, which is probably making a lot of you guys think about the Boston Strangler case from 1962 to 1964, which was the same period of time that Beverly was killed. And we are going to touch on that a little bit later, but Beverly is considered to have been one of his victims. So although the Boston Strangler had been caught in 1964, due to lack of evidence and fear someone else could have been behind it after all, Jane's parents were understandably concerned about her living in the same space as a murder victim. But Jane settled into her new space, moving her pet cat and turtle in with her. On Monday, January 6, 1969, 23-year-old Jane Britton and her boyfriend James, of eight months by the way, 
had a date planned that night as he was returning to Cambridge after spending the holidays with his family in Canada. So since they had been apart for a couple weeks or so, she told her father Joseph earlier that day about how excited she was about seeing him. And basically their plan was to go ice skating in Cambridge Common, which is a large park near Harvard Square. But first, Jane had dinner with some friends. After a night of good food, good friends, and ice skating with James, she and James had drinks at Charlie's Pub before he dropped Jane back off at her apartment. Before going into her unit, she stopped in to see her neighbor friends, Jill and Donald, who had been watching her cat for the evening, and the three shared a bottle of sherry as a nightcap while they chatted for a bit. Then Jane took her cat back to her apartment to go to sleep. Now, the next morning, Tuesday, January 7th, 1969, Jane was supposed to have an exam that she failed to arrive for. And you guys know by now that Jane was an incredibly punctual student. She was super smart. She would have never missed a class or a test, especially without warning her professor. So concerned by her absence, her boyfriend James stopped by her apartment, but received no answer at the door. Hearing him knock, Jill and Donald emerged from next door and joined him, growing concerned when he told them that Jane was unaccounted for, because these were the last three people to see her, and they saw her just the night before, so they don't understand what could be happening here. So cautiously, they entered her apartment and found it still and eerily quiet. And when they reached Jane's bedroom, they saw why. Her bloodied body, still clad in her pajamas from the night before, was lying face down on her bed, beneath the fur coat that she had worn on her date night with James. Tossed over her body was a Greek flocati rug that she had acquired on her travels. It was a white wool rug, kind of resembled a shag carpet. And her blood had soaked through the entire front of it. The group made their gruesome discovery around 12.30 p.m. that day, and it's believed that she had been dead for about 12 hours, meaning she was killed shortly after she returned home the night before, after she settled in briefly and got into her night clothes. Though an autopsy was imminent, law enforcement observed that she had likely died from blunt force trauma to the head, as according to the responding lieutenant, quote, She had been hit from all angles and at least twice in the face. The most eerie detail, though, was that her body and the area surrounding it had been sprinkled with dots of what police believed was red ochre powder, which was used as a coloring agent in Africa for hundreds of thousands of years, as well as for body and hair decoration. It was also known to be used in burial practices by Native Americans to decorate or cover the deceased person's corpse. And the red ochre had even been sprinkled on the walls. So this added a really curious layer to this investigation, with police jumping to the belief that they were dealing with a murder of sacrificial nature, and that perhaps Jane had been targeted for her work in Middle Eastern archaeology. Detective Sergeant John Galligan who was one of the first on the scene, recalled that Jane's fellow anthropology students, including her boyfriend James and also the Mitchells, observed that the red powder sprinkled on her is similar to what would have been used in a primitive burial rite. John recalled, quote, They told us we were dealing with a sick man. And then he added, quote, It was described to me as an ancient symbolic method of purifying the body to get it into paradise and to rid it of evil spirits. Regarding Jane's actual apartment, 
Nothing really of value had been stolen. You know, the only missing thing was the potential murder weapon. But Jill and Donald Mitchell did observe that a stone that they had brought back for Jane from a recent expedition had vanished. But other than that, there was very little sign that anyone else had been present in that apartment, let alone that a brutal murder had taken place. So this takes out the likely theory that, you know, they, they always look at at first, um, that it was just a, a murder that had taken place during a struggle, um, you know, during a home invasion or a robbery. Yeah, exactly. And, and now it seems like there's a little bit more to the story here. So now detectives entertain the possibility that they were dealing with someone who was targeting Jane specifically taunting her and sending a message to her loved ones. But aside from the missing rock and the sprinkled powder, police really couldn't find any indication that this was someone that she knew. Since she had been sexually assaulted before her death, this pointed to the possibility of a completely random, sexually motivated crime of opportunity that escalated to a brutal murder, perhaps from Jane's attempt to fight back. Exactly. So some reports on the crime scene indicate that Jane's front door had been left unlocked intentionally. And this would have been because, uh, so the Mitchells said later that she would leave it unlocked for them to be able to use her fridge because I guess she had a fridge that was bigger than theirs and they would need extra space. So they would use hers. But another newspaper printed that they simply held on to a key to use her fire escape because their apartment didn't have one. So we don't know why it was left unlocked, but her door was left unlocked. And it seems like this was in whichever way it goes, it was related to the Mitchells just being able to have access. Unless of course they did have a key, but regardless, as you can imagine, other tenants of the building were outraged that a second crime of this magnitude could be committed in the same apartment complex, simply due to careless security measures, which I, I can't even imagine, especially in such a short frame of time. It's so concerning. So on the security situation of this building, as Jane's parents had worried, the building was not properly maintained and virtually no security measures had been taken, including even having functional locks on the front door of the building. So police believe that Jane's murderer gained access to her apartment by scaling the fire escape attached to the side of the building and then climbing to the fourth floor where her apartment was located and forcing his way in through the window that opened onto the fire escape. And if that theory is true, then it would mean that he didn't end up taking the front door and that whole piece wasn't relevant. But police also leaned into the hypothesis that Jane's murder was a personal one, and that maybe a scorned lover was likely responsible. The day after her murder, the Boston Globe printed that police were entertaining culprits such as, quote, a sex fiend, a prowler, a crazed psychedelic hippie, and a rejected suitor. That just seems like the most late 1960s quote of all time. Yeah. Uh, literally a psychedelic hippie yeah. or a prowler or a sex fiend. That that just seems like a seems like a movie. Yeah, it is definitely 1969. So, police combed the surrounding area for a discarded murder weapon, which they believe could be that rock taken from Jane's apartment or possibly a tool, including a hand hatchet, a cleaver, or even an archaeologist ball-peen hammer, which would indicate that a cohort of hers was likely involved. I mean, it really seems to be kind of leaning that way if they if they believe that maybe it was like an archaeologist tool and the fact that there was this red ochre uh, surrounding her body, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like that could be very possible. It's all really weird, and that's why they wanted to at least try to rule that out and figure out who her cohorts were and question them and see who had alibis to see if that was the plausible route. So shortly after her death, police announced that they sought to speak with an ex-boyfriend of Jane's whom they believed had just returned from a trip to Peru. However, he was quickly eliminated after they spoke to his new girlfriend who provided an alibi for him. They also interviewed a man who had been interested in Jane and even asked her out but was turned down, wondering if he was spiteful and jealous of her relationship with James. But this man was also cleared of involvement. January 10th, 1969 brought Jane's memorial with her friends, peers, boyfriend, and all of her family in attendance. Believing her killer may show up as well, police were present and also filmed the service and wake to be able to look back for any clues. As they spoke to more of her neighbors, fellow students, professors, and friends, more theories began to spill out. And a fellow Harvard student who lived downstairs from Jane's apartment recalled seeing a commotion on their street that evening that she was killed. Though the neighborhood was static in the still of the frigid January night, he recalled seeing two men with slicked back hair running down the street and jumping into a parked car, one of them yelling, get in the car, get in the car. The witness remembered them getting into an older model black sedan and speeding off, but that was the only witness statement that they had because none of her neighbors reported hearing any screaming or any sounds of an altercation that night. Although one neighbor reported hearing what she thought was someone on the fire escape late that evening. Now, two days after the discovery of Jane's body, her boyfriend James, Jill, and Donald Mitchell, and a fourth person who remained anonymous, but who was likely a neighbor, were given polygraph examinations about their statements and potential involvement, and all four people passed. So three weeks of intense investigations went by and law enforcement were still grasping at straws. The Middlesex County District Attorney announced that, quote, investigators have nothing definite in a case that has baffled them from the beginning. The District Attorney's Office also admitted to hearing witness testimonies for anyone believed to have been in the area at the time, as well as Jane's neighbors, friends, peers, and professors but they still had no prime suspect or any evidence. However, on the Harvard campus, the rumors had already decided who their suspect was. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? 
Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything that you need to sell in person. I absolutely love Shopify. I launched my coffee company, Elders Coffee, with Shopify in December, and it has been such an amazing process. I seriously could not recommend Shopify more. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. And they really do. So what are you waiting for? Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash going west, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash going west to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash going west. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for going west and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. Rocketmoney.com slash going west.
Among Jane's fellow students, gossip persisted that one of Jane's teachers had been the one to kill her. Now, supposedly after an affair between them kind of soured and she moved on with her boyfriend James, her professor grew jealous, killing her in a fit of rage and dusting her with powder in what was described as a, quote, macabre postmortem ritual. Though there was no factual basis of these claims, the rumors began after it was discovered that Jane's faculty advisor, who had also accompanied her on the dig in Iran, had given her a stern warning about her upcoming examinations. She had apparently failed an examination in her first semester, and her professor, who was a guy named Karl Lamberg Karlovsky, alerted her that her future at Harvard could be in jeopardy if she didn't adequately prepare. Fellow students of his described him as arrogant, short-tempered, and at times downright unpleasant. He was also known to have inappropriate flirtations with students, even though he was older and married. According to others who were present at the dig in Iran, Carl was critical of Jane's contribution, but also seemed to favor her, which led speculation that the two were engaging in a sexual relationship of some kind, though there was no evidence to suggest that this was true. This was just something that people were thinking and speculating on. The possibility of this dynamic did, however, complicate investigative efforts, as police interviews were rife with speculation. Some students claimed that they believed it was possible that Jane was killed to keep her quiet about their affair, which would terminate Carl's stint at Harvard. Now, not only was he esteemed within the community, but he was up for tenure at the time. One student who knew both Carl and Jane even reportedly speculated that Jane was blackmailing Carl into passing her for her examinations by threatening to go public with their alleged affair, which is an accusation that would likely end both his time at Harvard and his marriage. Well, luckily, Carl was questioned, and he called the accusations against him outlandish and preposterous, maintaining that he had the utmost respect for Jane as a person and a student. So like many others in this investigation, Carl is off the table. In February of 1969, just a month after Jane's murder, a grand jury heard all the evidence that police had collected including theories that could have implicated Carl Lamberg Karlowski, but unanimously, it was decided that there was not enough evidence to arrest anyone in her slang. So let's go back a little bit here. Back in 1964, a Boston man named Albert DeSalvo was arrested for breaking into the apartment of a young woman, tying her to the bed, raping her, and then fleeing into the night. Thankfully, she survived to report the harrowing incident, and when she did and identified Albert DeSalvo as her attacker, he confessed to 13 murders over the course of a year and a half, as well as a slew of other rapes. And one of his victims was Beverly Sammons, who, remember, was the 23-year-old who had been found dead in her apartment in the building that Jane later resided in and, too, was murdered in. Frustratingly, due to a startling lack of physical evidence left behind, Albert was never charged with any of these murders. In 1967, he was sentenced to life in prison for his involvement in the series of rapes, but he was never held accountable for the shocking murders that he claimed responsibility for. But then, in 1973, he was actually killed in a dispute with another inmate while serving his prison sentence. 
However, because his case was never properly tried or investigated due to lack of evidence, many felt that he may not have been acting alone. Because most of his victims were strangled to death after being assaulted, the media dubbed Albert the Boston Strangler, which is a case that I know many of us are familiar with as Daphne mentioned, but if you're not, between 1962 and 1964, at least 13 women in the Boston area were strangled to death. Now, although he was already incarcerated by the time that Jane was killed, was it possible that Albert's co-conspirator, if there actually was one, was responsible? In the wake of the arrest of the Boston Strangler with the entire city on edge, rumors surfaced of a new serial killer plaguing this area. Because about a month after Jane's murder, another Cambridge woman was murdered under eerily similar circumstances. And how insane, I know that this was a time where serial killers were a bit more active than they are compared to today, for example, but the fact that in within the 60s, there's two different serial killers in the Boston area. They think that Jane, originally think that Jane's murder could be connected to the first one, and now they're thinking she could be connected to the second one. It's just wild. Yeah, it is absolutely terrifying. So on February 6th, 1969, one day shy of exactly one month since Jane's murder. 50-year-old Ada Bean was discovered bludgeoned to death inside her third floor apartment, which was just a quarter of a mile or about four tenths of a kilometer from Jane's apartment. That is super, super close. So Ada had also been found in her bed, still wearing her pajamas, though they had been pulled up around her shoulders, which indicated that a sexual assault may have taken place. Like Jane, she had also been covered up. Her attacker tossed a blanket over her before fleeing into the night. And they believed that she had been killed two days prior to her discovery, at some point late on the evening of Tuesday, February 4th, or early on the morning of Wednesday, February 5th, 1969. The reason that she was found even two days later is because her employer became concerned when she didn't show up to work on Wednesday and reported her missing after that. And then after gaining access to the apartment, police found her bludgeoned to death in her bed. Blood had been splattered as far as the ceiling as she sustained her injuries and sadly, Ada's murder has never been solved. And for decades, it seemed like Jane's murder would suffer that same fate. When the grand jury indictments led nowhere and the leads completely dried up, the case turned cold by the end of the year. So naturally, her friends, family, and loved ones were frustrated at the lack of answers, as for years, her murder was barely even discussed in the media, let alone investigated. In 1978, so nine years after Jane's murder, her mom Ruth Britton passed away without ever knowing what happened to her daughter. Every few years, the Boston Globe, whose thorough coverage of the case dominated newsstands in 1969, would print a refresher on her murder alongside a plea for information, but there were never any updates. That is, until almost 50 years after her murder. In 2017, her brother Boyd said regarding the solving of her case, quote, "'My pessimism remains.'" Donald claimed that he and his wife mourned the loss of their friend and neighbor for decades and still hoped for a conclusion. By then living in Hawaii, he kept the rug that was found discarded on top of Jane's body in order to keep her memory alive. He said, quote, I don't think that two months have ever gone by when I don't think about it. 
Then in November of 2018, just two months before the 50th anniversary of Jane's death, the Middlesex County District Attorney's Office announced that they had found a link to their killer, and Jane was not his only victim. Using Ancestry.com DNA, police located a link to the murderer's biological brother, who was very cooperative in their line of questioning and even offered a DNA sample to them for comparison. The man in question was a local Boston man named Michael Sumter, someone who had not been on their radar whatsoever when the crime occurred. However, he was already well known to police because Michael had a lengthy criminal record dating back to his teens. Just two years younger than Jane, Michael grew up in the Cambridge area and worked near Jane's apartment building, and his girlfriend at the time also lived in Jane's neighborhood. In 1965, when Michael was 19, he was arrested after stealing a purse from a woman on the street and he served a short stint in prison for this crime. Though unfortunately, his offenses began to get worse upon his release. As far as police knew, he was next arrested on an assault and battery charge for which he was given a longer sentence of six to 10 years. But somehow, he convinced the court to offer him furlough for a day to attend an event, and instead, he fled and evaded capture for a whole month. It was during this period of time that he killed his third known victim. In 1973, he committed another purse theft and then assaulted the police officer who apprehended him. He was also found to be in possession of a loaded firearm, which as a felon was illegal. In 1975, while serving time for his latest crime spree, he was inexplicably offered work release, despite his history of running from the law. But instead of reporting to work, Michael broke into a young woman's apartment and assaulted her. He had entered the home with permission, breaking into an apartment building before knocking on the door of a young woman, telling her that he was a new neighbor and that he needed a drink of water. Get your own water. I know, what the hell? So when she kindly obliged and let him inside, he disappeared into the bathroom and returned, clad in latex gloves, attacking and assaulting her before fleeing the apartment. After reporting the incident, she plucked his picture from a lineup of 250 people. Thankfully, police were able to track him down quickly this time, and he was arrested for a final time. So given that he was a violent offender and a known flight risk, Michael was given a sentence of 21 to 30 years in prison. What police didn't know, however, was that he also had at least three murders under his belt. And Jane was actually Michael's first known victim. And because Jane and Michael had no known history or contact prior to the attack, investigators believe it to be a crime of opportunity. Being from the area, it's possible that Michael had been watching Jane and took a liking to her. But it's equally possible that he watched her come home or saw her through her apartment window, which was adjacent to a fire escape, and then jumped at the opportunity to assault her. Michael claimed his next victim almost exactly three years later. 24-year-old Ellen Rutchick was a secretary at a hotel in the Back Bay neighborhood of Boston, which is about 15 minutes away from Cambridge. So late on the evening of January 5th, 1972, Michael broke into Ellen's Back Bay apartment, strangled her with the cord of a hi-fi stereo, and ripped off some of her clothing. The following day, when she didn't report to work as usual, a few of her coworkers at the hotel stopped by her apartment to check on her. And when they arrived, 
They were puzzled to find her door left not only unlocked, but open. Inside, limp on the couch, was Ellen's body, clad only in a robe and a torn bra. And further examination yielded that she had also been raped. The final victim attributed to Michael is 24-year-old Mary Lee McLean, who, like Ellen, worked as a secretary. Mary Lee was home in her apartment in the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston, but unlike the other two women, she had not been alone. So two female roommates and a male friend had been home at the time, making it very surprising that no one in the apartment heard anything suspicious. But a neighbor of theirs did report later that they heard someone clatter down the metal staircase in the back of the building early on the morning that Mary Lee was killed, which was December 12th, 1973. So these all took place during the winter time. Well, it's now believed that this commotion was Michael fleeing from Mary Lee's third floor apartment after murdering her around 3.30 that morning. A few hours later, around 8 a.m., one of her roommates went into her bedroom to check on her and found Mary Lee in her nightgown on her bed, strangled to death. In total, Michael was linked to five sexual assault cases, three of which resulted in murder. And though James was the first to occur, it was the last of the three to be connected to him, meaning that the other two already were solved before they could make this connection to Jane Britton's murder 50 years later. Yeah, because in 2010, investigators established the link between Ellen Rutchick and Michael Sumter, and two years later connected him to Mary Lee McLean. Frustratingly, he was never brought to justice for those brutal murders because he was already dead. And actually, Michael passed away from cancer in 2001 at the age of 54 while continuing to serve his sentence for the rape that he committed in 1975. After his death, his information was entered into the CODIS database and later connected with his victims. And although it was disheartening that he managed to avoid being charged with the murders of these three young women, their families were thankful for some final closure. Ellen's sister Irene Rutchick said after the discovery, quote, This is a great relief. It is helpful to know who the murderer was, particularly for me because I always wondered if it was someone I knew. My understanding is that it was totally random. It was a real tragedy to our family for many, many years that she was no longer with us. But I think he faced justice in many ways. He died in prison, and for us, it's a relief to know the facts. Jane's was the oldest cold case in Middlesex County to be solved. Her brother Boyd told reporters that he was thankful to have finally received closure in his sister's case after so much time had passed. He said in his statement, quote, A half century of mystery and speculation has clouded the brutal crime that shattered Jane's promising young life and our family. As the surviving Briton, I wish to thank all those friends, public officials, and press who persevered in keeping this investigation active, most especially State Police Sergeant Peter Sennett. The DNA evidence match may be all we ever have as a conclusion. Learning to understand and forgive remains a challenge. Thank you 
you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. Thank you so much again to Julia for recommending today's case. It's always crazy because this is something we've been seeing a lot in recent years, that these cases from 50 or so years ago are finally being solved due to places like Ancestry.com and genealogical DNA testing. So it's it's crazy to see how much that is happening, and it's so amazing. So I'm glad that at least some of her friends and family who are still alive were able to get that information, but it's so sad that they couldn't figure it out sooner. Yeah, and it also really sucks that this asshole died before he had to you know, really serve any justice for all these crimes that he committed. But at the end of the day... That is one less piece of shit on the streets. Indeed. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Upgrade you to our shred membership. For 130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.